0: All right, this is the Peace on Drugs podcast. This will be the fourth episode featuring my oldest friend, David Buckley, truly one of the most original people I've ever met in my life. Uh, he has a great story to tell. He went from a uh, drug dealer to prison to now owning a small chain of head shops in the North Carolina mountains. Now, he, we did this podcast remotely, and that's why I'm doing this introduction. I do think I'm going to start doing a little introduction for each podcast um, I might, may even do some um, solo podcast coming up here because I have some stories I want to tell that I don't want to waste somebody else's whole interview talking about myself. So I want to do some of these stories that will just be me telling stories from my past. But in this podcast, you're going to get to hear some stories that happened to me and my friend David Buckley, and he's going to tell his story. Um, but I wanted to do this introduction because... Uh, The sound quality that I got from his phone because he was calling from the North Carolina Mountains was not great. You'll have to get past that. I recommend, you know, just don't immediately turn it off because you're like, I don't like this quality. You'll get used to it, and it's a great conversation, and it'll be a hundred percent worth getting over that. And just kind of, once you get into the podcast, you'll forget you're even here in that quality. You'll just you'll, it'll be like just listening to a phone talking, listening to somebody talking on the phone that doesn't have the greatest connection. But if you love what they're saying, you're going to stay on that phone call. And that's what this is. It's a great podcast, one of the best that I've had yet. My great friend David Buckley, and I will have him back in person we'll have better quality. But for this, for for now, all I can do is remotely. Um, He is hoping to come down this summer, but I hope you enjoy it. This is my great friend, David Buckley.
1: America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. Drugs are menacing our society. Your thoughts on the drug problem. I had a great time doing drugs. (laughs) So tonight, from our family to yours, from our home to yours, thank you for joining us.
0: This is the piece on drugs. On drugs. drugs. All right, I'm here f- with my good friend David Buckley, who is um you're, you are on your talking from your phone and you are in the Western North Carolina mountains.
1: Correct. That is correct.
0: Awesome. Um and um like we so we I've known you I'll start with a little outline of what we're going to talk about on the podcast and then we'll go we'll get into, into heavy. I want to start with um with us in high school. Um like I say you you're my oldest friend. We go back to high school and I want to talk about um, you know, Hanging out in your driveway, uh, discuss how you and, you and I used to debate with your dad about why marijuana should be legal. Um,
1: right, definitely, he'd love to come out there and get in those conversations with us.
0: Yeah, he would. <laughs> and um, and then how you you turned like weed dealer to selling cocaine to prison, and then to coming out of prison to be a chef, and then you ended up opening one, then two, then three, and now four. Pied Piper locations. And the Pied Piper, would you refer to it as a smoke shop or a head shop? or What would you call it?
1: Um, we would refer to it, It could, you could refer to it as a smoke shop, a head shop, you know, an old school type uh, business deal like that with your pipes and um, uh, all your nifty incenses and t-shirts and hats and things like that. Um, we also have picked up the uh, vape business industry as well. So I'd say probably... A good thirty to forty percent of our sales can be vape related nowadays. Definitely, so uh, some people might call us a vape store, but the original idea and concept is definitely based around you know your your good old fashioned head shop.
0: Yeah, because you sell a lot of other pipes and and also so legally, what am I? If I come into your place and I go, hey, do you sell bongs? You're going to tell me to get out of there, right?
1: That is correct. The term bong is still. For some reason, that is the one term that is uh, quite iffy to use, and it can trip you up legally. With the way that um, uh, certain uh, extracted parts of the hemp plant have become legal through the 2018 Farm Bill Act, you can now have CBD smoking bowls, a CBD rig for your concentrated CBDs. You know, so it's that that part of the industry, the terminology has opened up a decent little bit. Obviously, if we have somebody coming in the store speaking about they're going to get high off of this or how much marijuana can I put in this bong, that's a no sale, right? Because it, it's probably most likely an
0: undercover cop because anybody else knows not to it, say that.
1: That is correct. And people who come in and slip up in the beginning, they'll say, Oh, can I take a look at those bongs on the wall? You know, we'll say, Oh, so we don't sell anything called a bong, these are water pipes. If you'll please refer to those. You know, use correct terminology from here on out, everything will be okay. If they keep pushing the envelope, that's when we get a little bit of a problem with it because that's when most likely you're going to have somebody that, you know, might be uh, might not be in there just to buy something, might be in there and trip you up or something like that, which right. is uh, definitely not, not anything that we want to get into. And of course, all products that we sell in our store are for tobacco or CBD illegal smoking use only
0: <laughs> gotcha and now so you're in North Carolina because I, I was wondering I'd like to talk to the, one of the head shop owners around here because now that we have medical marijuana, I wonder if they're allowed to talk about smoking their me- medical marijuana out of the pipe or if it's still like a that they haven't corrected the laws yet are they still not allowed to talk about that I, I don't know the answer but north that's Car-
1: a fantastic question um I went to a convention in Colorado in 2015, and the way they had it set up out there, I was noticing that the dispensaries and the head shops could not operate out of the same venue. You could have a dispensary that might have a few pipes in there or a couple packs of rolling papers, just something you know to, to help you out when you, you get your stuff and everything. But um, uh, like real big head shops and things like that, they weren't allowed to dispense. They had to be two separate entities. So that might that that there is a possibility within being two separate entities entities like that that you know possibly they could um uh, you know still try to regulate the um uh, actual smoking apparatuses
0: right. instead
1: of the what you put in yourself. As um uh, is kind of coming around with this um uh, vape mail ban where they're banning all the shipping from um, from manufacturers to customers. It's supposed to be vape-related products, but it's spilled over into um a CBD vapes and things like that as well. So it's uh, just a, a good example of the government uh, trying to regulate something that they don't exactly know all about yet.
0: <laughs> exactly, and that's what we're gonna see as marijuana gets more and more accepted in different states, especially if the Biden administration uh, decriminalizes federally, which they've said they were gonna do. We'll see if that, that goes through. But because um, what you know, think about alcohol prohibition, now you, you had states, you had dry counties. Now you have, like in North Carolina, the liquor can't be sold the same place as the beer. Here it can, but the, still the liquor stores have to be in a separate building. They, like Publix can sell liquor, but it has to be in a separate place. So, we're, so I guess we're seeing the same thing with marijuana. They're trying to decide how they're going to, like, they don't want a bong. And it's because there's this weird thing about bongs where they're, like, stereotyped as being this like, oh, if you're smoking a bong, then you're trying to get fucked up. But if you're smoking a joint, then, you, then, you know, maybe you're just trying to, to ease your glaucoma or something. But the, the, the reality is you can get just as high on a joint as you can hitting a bong.
1: Definitely. I'm not exactly sure where the stigma around that particular word came from. I'm wondering if it wasn't something to do coming out of the sixties and seventies with the um, war on drugs against the hippie culture. And, and they decided, okay, you know what? That's the term they use. So that's, you know, if that's what they're referring to, this is, and that's definitely what they're doing with this. That's
0: exactly what it is.
1: People don't quite understand is it's, um, uh, it's not like, it's not like it, it was back then. And also, if you look at prohibition, what did we have prohibition for? I think it lasted about 10 years was like 1920, 21 to 1930
0: or something like that. So we've had
1: this so-called war on drugs that Nixon started since like, I don't know, you know, the, the late sixties or seventies, and that's gone on for 50 years. It only took us 10 years to realize prohibition wasn't working for alcohol. You know, it's, it's, it's a wonder that it hasn't taken us this long still to realize that this this isn't
0: working, guys. All this stuff is still out here. Yeah, I, I think um, my my listeners might get tired of me mentioning this book, but I talk about it in like every podcast because I recommend it. It's the best book I read about the war on drugs. It's called "Chasing the Scream" by Johan Hari. Chasing the
1: scream.
0: Yeah, because I always thought Nixon started the war on drugs too, and then you read it, you realize Nixon. Nixon, what you're not incorrect because Nixon did the the war on drugs the way we know it today. Nixon did do that, but the the actual like the banning of drugs and the um the scheduling of drugs started under a guy named Harry Anslinger, who was a, he, he took over the prohibition, uh, whatever, uh, was in, and he was in charge of prohibition right as alcohol was being, le- being legalized again. So he knew that, that his department was about to be shut down. So instead what he did was he ended up legalizing or, uh, making all the other drugs illegal. And a lot of it came down to, um, like there was, there was a lot of racial discrimination of, well, um, what was it? The, uh, the Mexicans are going to smoke marijuana and, and rape your daughters, or, you know, the co- the Chinese are going to do cocaine and stuff like that. So it was like all these different stereotypes that they, they kind of use as propaganda to get the white people on board to be like, we got to get these drugs out of this country. And that's kind of where it started.
1: Exactly. I've seen those ridiculous movies that they had back then. And you are totally right. I have heard of Antslinger myself. I believe He's kind of responsible for the 1937 Tax Act that initially, you know, got, got us to where we are with the, the, the scheduling of, of marijuana and everything today.
0: Yeah, that is right. I don't remember exactly what that, the tax tax was, but it was something to do with it was a way for the federal government to outlaw drugs uh, against the Constitution, basically, was to do it through a tax law.
1: I think the way that it worked is if you wanted to legally possess it, you had to pay your tax on it and get a tax stamp. So to get the tax stamp, you had to take your product to, you know, wherever you got your tax stamp. But because you didn't have the tax stamp when you took the product there, you would be arrested.
0: Oh, shit. (laughs) These sneaky motherfuckers. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. I'm not sure where it evolved, where the actual scheduling act evolved from there. But I know that that man had, yeah, he was he was a big guy behind the propaganda and went around eradicating fields, you know, all through New Jersey and stuff like that to, to get rid of it because it was, a, uh, it was like one of the most, um, rapidly, you know, readily just wild weeds that just grew naturally around here kind of. And uh, yeah. they, they had to, they, they had to get rid of it there to start with, which makes you wonder, you know, what, what that do to the environment, all this, you know, going around burning, ripping all these plants up and stuff.
0: That's true. It's definitely, um, it's really odd the way that we, they've treated drugs. And um, and the thing about the scheduling when he did the scheduling is the way that they scheduled the Schedule 1 substances are substances that have no medical purpose. Schedule 2 is if they're, they're outlawed but they have a medical purpose and that means it's a lesser sentence. So here you have cocaine and heroin making the Schedule 2 and you have marijuana on Schedule 1 which makes marijuana a, a more of an offense than heroin or cocaine. and that's
1: just- Which is just ridiculous especially because there's there is, there is so many medical, you know, findings and studies out there that are are just proving that there there are medical applications for this. You know, I mean, I, I know personally, it, it. I mean, from anxiety to insomnia to you know aches and pains. I mean, any of that, any of that, it can treat any of that quite well as long as you know you're not just sitting around smoking weed all day because that's. That's not, it it can be addictive, you know, if you look at somebody who uses marijuana, like they maybe smoke a gram a day or something, a little bit in the morning, possibly in the afternoon, you know, have themselves a little nightcap at night. For the most part, they seem to function in society quite well and, and, and kind of be, you know, pretty happy. Now, I do know people, you know, that, you know, they'll, still, they'll sit around and smoke a, a half ounce a weed a day or something. And that's not exactly the route to go either, per se.
0: Exactly. Well, that's like that was us in high school was we, we would smoke as much as we could afford and get as high <laughs> as we that's could. That's
1: what I was thinking. It was, yeah. A half ounce was not enough for us in high school,
0: if uh-huh. I recall. <laughs> but uh, we, we, it's like we were trying to forget who we were or something. You know, I think it's just going through the the adolescent years is just a weird thing. So, so you find drugs and you're like, oh, let's just get as high as we can. And then when you get older, like now I'm more like what you said, I smoke a little in the morning, I smoke a little in the afternoon. And when I get home, I might smoke a little. And, um, and I just, it, like you said, makes me, makes the day a little brighter. That's all it does. It doesn't make, I yeah, go to work. Yeah, there's a
1: little bit of perspective on things that are better. I, if there's a stressful situation coming your way, for the most part, it's they're they're easier to deal with, at least in my situation anyways. It definitely, um, I will say for the factor of, of, um, anxiety relief or or stress relief or just being able to take a breath and be like, okay, I've got all this kind of, you know, I can do this. Let's, let's get it done. I've definitely noticed that marijuana helps with that tremendously, but specifically CBD itself, the extracted CBD is fantastic for that. You almost feel you almost feel your shoulders get lighter like there's literally a weight being lifted off them i know that's funny to say and everything because you don't really get any type of a psychoactive or physical effects from cbd that much other than pain relief and it's good for insomnia and stuff but uh, as far as as for my anxiety it it is it's something
0: that's amazing my wife said the same thing about cbd but she can't handle thc very well when she gets high she just does not like it and that's some people are like that but the cbd did help her and and that's the thing. I've heard a lot of people say that they've been helped from CBD. I personally, when, when I've smoked the CBD buds and I've done the CBD, I just don't notice anything. What I like to do sometimes is take the CBD bud and mix it with regular buds so I can smoke a whole joint without being super stoned. I can sit there and just enjoy a joint.
1: Now, that's good too. Also, um, the CBD actually, on a small level, counteracts the effects of THC. That is, yeah, so that is true. If you, when you, when, yeah, when you mix. You'll get a little less high, but the uh, to to me the medical benefits are coming from the amount of cannabinoids that you can get out of the plant. So the more strains you have, that you know the, the the more different kind of extracts or oh, this is CBD, this is Delta eight, this is Delta nine. You put all that together, you're getting so many cannabinoids in your body, and your body loves those cannabinoids. You know that they they feed feed off of them. Most of them exist naturally in the body already. So you could look at it as like, well, I'm just taking some vitamins which yeah. I know a lot of people refer to it as their medicine and stuff. I mean, I, I will say medical reasons are sometimes the reason that, that I do it, but sometimes, you know, it's just like, well, everything's done. There's there's nothing to do. I think I'll smoke a a little bolt. Yeah,
0: <laughs> and, you know, I was listening to a Hamilton Morris on Joe Rogan. I don't know if you've listened to him or if you've seen his show, uh, uh, Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia. Are you talking
1: about Mr. Pharmacopoeia? Yeah. Yes, I love that guy, yeah. man. <laughs>
0: he's he's a genius. He's so, so you know he knows his shit man but he was talking about on um, i don't remember exactly what he said but something about referring to like the plant as medicine he's like and he's like it definitely is for some people he's like but the, the problem with that is that it doesn't need to be legal because it's medic- med because of its medicinal value it needs to be legal because it needs to be legal we don't need to arrest people for marijuana we need to regulate it federally and just get past the whole well if you can use it medically then we can use it well what if it just makes people feel good just you know
1: exactly it's, if you get down to the exact it of it, it seems kind of dumb to spend a crap ton of taxpayer money to keep somebody in a cell so they can't get out because they had a plant in their pocket.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely – It
1: just doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense. It's criminal. I know from the, the time when I was being incarcerated – um I learned from, you know, just being in there and everything, talking to people that at that particular time, now this is back in, I think 2005 or six. So this, it's probably more now at that particular time, it cost the, the state thirty seven thirty. I can't remember the exact figure, so I'm not going to try to quote exactly, but between 37 and $39,000 per year per inmate. Yep. And that's, that's the taxpayer how much money it cost them to a, Oh, I'm sorry. That's how much it, it cost them, you know, to have an inmate incarcerated for a year. $38,000. I mean, that's if you were to take that person that you have in jail for a year for marijuana and take them out and pay them $38,000 a year instead of using it to keep them incarcerated, I'm quite sure that they would, um, uh, you know, everything would be just fine. They wouldn't go out and kill anybody or anything like that.
0: Yeah, well, I think what they should do is, well, first of all, stop arresting people for marijuana. Just stop that immediately. But um, as far as the incarceration, even with violent criminals, I think that our system of punishment versus rehabilitation needs to change. I think if we eliminated all the nonviolent offenders and only, only kept prisoners that were actually a threat to society... Actually, would be dangerous if they were out, and then use the money we were saving by not arresting nonviolent people to give uh, mental health counseling to these people. We could get some of them yeah. reintegrated into society, and then the ones that are extremely dangerous, we could at least treat it more like a, a medical thing than than a punishment thing. I think the punishment thing is very, um, it's not very zen. You know, like I, I like the idea of like we need to have compassion even for people we don't understand, sociopaths, pe- people that just don't make sense. We need to have some sort of compassion for them. Now that doesn't mean somebody like Ted Bundy. That's a whole different touchy subject. Somebody just brutally murders <laughs> women. Yeah. Like, maybe we put them. Maybe we we give them the uh, uh, an ejection that that puts them out peacefully. We just say, "Sorry, man, this didn't work out for you. You know, but you have to go. It's it's not us. It's you."
1: <laughs> but but you're not existing by our laws, and you're not going to.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. But for most people, even some violent people, I think that they've just had they've had really really crazy childhoods. They've been abused themselves, and they need mental help that they never got. And also, we could spend money with mental health for youth. I mean, I mean, the guidance counselor doesn't really count. We need better counseling for troubled youth to, to stop them from becoming violent criminals later. So,
1: exactly, and I totally agree with that point right there. A, a guidance counselor who's you know trying to deal with who knows how many kids per day and everything. Can, there's there's no way that they can give the attention to a certain person that needs some extra attention or possibly even notice that that person needs it. And then these people develop addictions and stuff, and they get in trouble and they get locked up. So we punish them by throwing them in a place where there's murderers and, you know, rapists and stuff. And on top of that, there's also the substances that they're addicted to all over the place.
0: Yep. Yeah. So that and that was there your experience. Is, there
1: is no lack of drugs behind those bars. If you want it, you can get it. It is all there. Yes,
0: yeah, it's. I mean, because if there's a market for anything, that's what we've learned in the war on drugs. If there is a market for something, which there is inside and outside of the prison, there is a market. People wanting to buy it. Anytime people want to buy, there's people wanting to sell it. And if pe- people that's are going to make the
1: exact money, exact reason yep. the war on drugs won't work is because this market will never go away it's not a market that the cartel created it's not a market that this administration didn't do enough to stop it's a market that's almost embedded in human nature you know
0: that's very well put yes yep exactly And,
1: and, and of course you do have people like the cartels and stuff who you know, they're, they're not going to stop. I mean, they're just as big as, as Tesla and Apple. <laughs> That's true. No, but they're, what I say is
0: if you legalize drugs, then the whole war side of, of the cartels, the whole mer- chopping people's heads off, because they're trying to send messages. They're also trying to make sure the cops don't fuck with them. But if you legalize it, that some, then, then we could put these people into a legal business, a legal trade of cocaine or whatever else. And that might sound, people that listen to this thing, it sounds crazy. They're selling cocaine anyway. People in this country are the ones buying it. I talked about this with my sister. It's like you can be mad about the Mexicans bringing drugs over, but they could equally just be as mad as us bringing cash over there funding the cartels because because we want drugs so the fact is americans want to do cocaine americans want to do heroin so we figure out a way to do it safer and we can get less people addicted if they had a safe place they could get heroin that they knew exactly what the doses were and if it came with mandatory counseling all right you're on heroin you have to go talk to a psychologist but you can get your heroin and then some of them would get off and some of them wouldn't but oh well they're going to do it anyway
1: i think you're totally right about that and I also am a believer in, in certain situations with certain substances. And I've seen this personally, especially working in the restaurant business for sure. You know, if if, if that person is allowed to have their 10 milligram Percocet in the morning or have their 20 milligram Oxycontin or whatever, as long as they're allowed to just do that, and no one messes with them, they function well enough. Now, the The people that's why, like you said, it needs to be controlled because there's there's people that don't know when to stop and they're you know they're not going to do that and everything, but if you're in the grips of an addiction like that, it's pretty crazy for society just to think, you know, we'll just put down the needle. I mean, I know you'll go through some withdrawals, but you know take some tone all you'll be all right Exactly. Well, you know, my, <laughs> my response to that is like is try withdrawals from opioids, just try it one time and tell me if you ever want to go through that again. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's it's like, and I and I've had withdrawals myself from a Viking addiction, which doesn't even compare to a heroin addiction. So I can't even imagine what that's like. But I tell you, just Viking withdrawal. Is, it was it was excruciating. I hated it. It was like my legs were restless and shaking and I, and I was having cold sweats. And another thing people don't realize, they compare it to the flu. The problem is, is it was like having a, a flu. My, mine was a little bit like a mild flu because it was Vicodin. But it also, I couldn't be, I, it made me extremely depressed. Imagine a flu that also you couldn't experience happiness while you had that flu. And and another problem is there's a fix for, for all the symptoms is just go go take another hit and you'll be fine. So it's such a hard thing yeah, to do. The be. answer,
1: the answer is right there waiting for you. It's literally a phone call away.
0: Yep. Yeah. It's 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 so much harder. It's Addiction crazy. is such a harder it's, thing for people to realize. And the thing is, is like so when when it, when Harry Anslinger first um, outlawed heroin and all these other drugs, he told the doctors, you know, you can't prescribe heroin anymore. Actually, arrested a doctor for continuing to pr- prescribe heroin after he outlawed it. And the doctor said, he's like, the he's like the doctor said, I, I can't, st-. he's like, I think he thought, he actually had this different view of uh, drug addicts. You know, he, he was one of those guys that thought that they were basically like just weak individuals, these drug addicts. He, he, he was, thought they were pathetic. But nonetheless, he said, if I give them their heroin, they go to work, they support their family, and they live basically normal lives. So they're just weak and need this drug. If you don't give it to them, What's going to happen is they're going to have to score it on the streets. The price is going to get jacked up. The quality of the drugs is going to get bad. They're going to be prone to diseases and all these other things, and they're not going to be able to support their family because of their addiction, and they're going to, it's going to lead to, the, lead to crime. And everything that that doctor was yeah. saying is what happened. Yeah,
1: that's where you get a lot of that serious crime. Is a lot of these people don't um, – nobody. nobody who's not in it for the money or the thrill or something like that doesn't just you know decide you know what I think I think I'm gonna snatch that old lady's purse you know why not <laughs> most of the times when you have crimes like that happening the motivating factor behind that is the financial gain for the purpose of scoring said substance that the person needs yep. and in a heroin addiction it's it's to the point to where they they need it is is it bad that all this is happening and everything yes but you know there I, I know that feeling. To the point, they're at the point of where if they don't do this, you know, they're scared that they're gonna die or something like that's gonna happen to them. And in certain severe situations, you know, that can happen.
0: Yeah, it can, especially if there's other withdrawals. You know, even um, alcohol withdrawal is actually deadly, and benzo withdrawal can be deadly for the same reason because it has the same effect to your brain as alcohol. And, um, but that's another thing that we, we, we don't realize people are usually less likely. Alcoholics are less likely to be stealing people's purses for alcohol. Um, I'm sure that there are people that have done it, but for the most part, because alcohol is is a regulated product and it's competitive in a market where the you don't have to pay. Like, you know, if you had to pay a hundred dollars for a bottle of moonshine and that's all you could get, you then you might get to the point of stealing purses. But no, you can go for five bucks and get a cheap bottle of liquor. So you're not needing to steal purses for your problem. Also, you can most likely go to work and and, and be slightly functional enough to get some money coming in, even as a pretty severe alcoholic. Um, because yeah, I it's, it's
1: <laughs> there's a few functioning alcoholics in my life a little bit, and uh, it's you know it's it works for some people. You know, they're able to live their life like that. But it's it's the legality of it that allows it to be. You know. To be like you can you can do it you can do it in front of your kids it's so okay, it's okay to do yeah. it in, you know out in, in parties it's it's accepted almost as a way as a celebration in lots of situations it, oh yeah we just closed the deal let's have a drink everybody
0: yep and whereas then, uh, yep. it would
1: it'd be a little bit riskier possibly you know kind of crazy to to say oh yeah we just closed a house deal all right well um uh, how how about we all do a line or. Does anybody
0: want a shot? <laughs> yeah, with the exception of Wall Street, I'm, I think all, at least Wall Street in the nineties. Well,
1: there. okay, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure they do. Um, uh, like but, but no, you're right. Though for the, the most part,
0: especially today, if you if you said, "All right, guys, look, we're breaking out the lines," there'd be some, like there'd be a few people there that are like, "Fuck yeah, this job's awesome," but there'd be a lot of people that would be like, "This is illegal. What are they doing?" Like it would just be bizarre. But um, but the thing is about alcohol, and I've talked about this before that. Alcohol is a hard drug. it is, it is deadly. It can the, the drug itself can kill, kill you, the withdrawal can kill you. Uh, it, it can you know it, it's a extremely intoxicating. Most violence uh, that happens, especially domestic violence happens under its influence. Um, all the automobile accidents that happen with it, and it's and it's integrated in our society in a way that it's not even it's not that you can drink, it's that you're almost expected to drink. and if you don't drink, people think you well he, that's, he must have a problem. You know It's just like, well, what if my problem is? I don't want to be drunk today. I just want to enjoy life without <laughs> exactly. without deadening my senses.
1: I'm sure and and I'm sure that um uh, especially in your line of work and everything that you might, you know, experience that or or see that a little bit more firsthand than um than I have. I can imagine, you know, um maybe people being a, possibly a, a little put off by a uh, entertainer who's not accepting a drink that they're buying them maybe or something. I'm I'm not sure but
0: Yep. Yeah, no, and that does happen. If uh, people will be like, "Let me buy you a shot," I'm like, "No, I'm good. No, 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 thanks." Like, what? What? What are you, what are you drinking? I'm like, just water. It's like, water. Come on. It's like, what do you mean, come on? Like, I don't have to drink because I'm a musician. Most of the musicians do, and most of them will do a shot with you. And don't get me wrong, I've been there many times where I am drinking, and I will take that shot. But, but my, I, I've kind of stopped drinking the way I used to because it's, I'm getting, you know, I'm getting a little older. I can't keep drinking like that. It's just not. It's not
1: healthy. I'm I'm on that route there with you. And speaking of alcohol being a hardcore drug, I totally agree with you. Any of the times I seem to uh, start slipping to the wayside or, well, I won't say start slipping to the wayside necessarily. I mean, there was plenty of stuff I did that was not um, necessarily on the up and up when I was sober and things like that. But when I would get into trouble, serious trouble and, and you know, end up getting in, in fights with my woman and things like that it would always circle back to alcohol or possibly the fact that I had taken some benzos because I drank some alcohol and gotten frisky and been like, I want to do something more. Everybody's always said that marijuana is a gateway drug. I don't believe that, or if it is, it's not for me. Smoking weed does not make me really want to go out and do any more drugs at all. It might make me want to smoke a little bit more weed, but that's about it. Now, when I drink though. I can get three to four beers in, you know, two shots in or something, and those thoughts will start coming, you know. I'm not sure if it's the environment of the bar or whatever like that, but those are always the times when I feel like I feel the pull or the urge to, you know, oh, man, I want to get into something tonight. And yep. I know it's always due to the fact that I've got the alcohol in my system talking to me saying, you need to go be ratchet, man. You've had three beers. You need to go do this.
0: Yeah. No, I'm with you, man. Like alcohol to me, because for me, alcohol sometimes isn't quite enough. When I start to get a buzz, it's like, now I'm getting bored. I'm getting a little tired, but if I do something crazy, it'll wake me up. Or if, if anybody has any cocaine, that would really help. So alcohol's always that, led to other that's drugs. That's it
1: right there. The, the alcohol and cocaine mixture was, was something for me. I didn't necessarily do a lot of cocaine per se. For one, it would he didn't, you know, I wanted to make the money off of it, honestly, instead of putting it up my nose. Yeah. But for for two, I wasn't a huge fan of having that and that alone in my system, and I was normally high off marijuana, so I didn't want to mix the two and stuff. But after having a few beers, like you said, you know, I'd start feeling a little down or something. You do a little line, next thing you know, you know, you're playing the guitar, your jaw's going, you're drinking more beer, you're ready to go to the next bar.
0: <laughs> yep, yep, for sure, man, that's exactly... And, uh, and, and also cocaine's a lot bigger in the bar scene than people probably realize. People think of cocaine or, you know, I don't know if people think about, I don't know how the average person thinks about it, but I don't think that they, they realize what it is. What it is is it's for people who are drinking in the bars, they go to the back, they get a bag of Coke and it's, and it sits in their pocket. And then, you know, every 30 minutes or so they go to the bathroom and pull out a key and just do a little bump and it keeps them, their butt. That way they can drink more and, have, and hang out all night without getting too tired or too belligerent.
1: That's it right there. I mean, you caught it right there. That's actually – that used to be, you know, when I would be out or not have any or anything, something like that, that would be a telltale sign for me to watch somebody and notice, okay, in the past 30 minutes they've gone to the bathroom six times. Maybe I need to get next to this dude, you know, and start talking about the football game and uh, kind of get into a conversation about, so what's up, buddy? Uh, See, you might uh, be able to have something I want.
0: Yep. (laughs) That's – um. It's uh, it is. You definitely see a pattern at the bars, even, like you said. If you notice somebody going uh, the bathroom a little more regularly, and um, and also you notice that they're not they're drinking a lot, but they don't seem like they're uh, they don't seem drunk. Well, there's a reason, because because cocaine exactly. really is or a balance. Talking like...
1: a whole lot, talking, chatting a whole lot. That's also another way. Now that I think about it, I've, I've never thought about this before. But that's another way that alcohol could be a gateway drug. If you're in there drinking and everything and you're kind of on the browse for a little bit of blow or something, you run across a guy or something like that, and he's like, well, I don't have what you're looking for, but I have this. Now, normally, you might not be interested in whatever this is, but because you're at the bar and you've had a good couple of beers or whatever, this opportunity is presented to you. You say, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to give this stuff a try. And that, that could be the Pandora's box that you're never able to close again
0: yeah yeah and for some people it is and i have i have friends that are addicted to coke i have friends that are addicted to uh heroin and stuff like that um but the 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 friends that are addicted to coke i find are they're much more normal because they hide it's easier to hide and um it's basically you know you 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 end up in the bars and you're just doing coke and it's not like a, a life threatening well i shouldn't say it's not a life threatening addiction i think at some point it becomes that but um the heroin is is because of fentanyl that's changed the whole game with opiates so You know, it's, it's just, it's such, it it really
1: has that's you don't, there's no, there's no knowing there really never was any knowing, you know, like what you're going to put in your body and everything like that. But because all of this stuff is just totally on the street level and there's no regulation. I mean, you have no clue unless you're getting your product and literally like chemistry set testing it to figure out what the components are in it, which I just don't think a lot of addicts are doing 99% of them
0: are not. (laughs) Yeah.
1: i'd imagine not then you have no idea what you're shooting up in you and and that fitting on now i mean that stuff's good 60 times stronger than what most of these people are used to so if you go to do your normal dose it's going to be 60 times stronger than that i mean anybody who does any substance just take the substance you do and imagine what doing that times 60 times would feel like how would you feel you probably wouldn't feel
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly and i uh, i talked to a fireman uh, here in fort myers and he was um he was talking about how they're, you know, they'll they'll have months of no no heroin overdoses, and then all of a sudden they'll have like ten in the same week. And what it is is a, a batch of fentanyl got sold as heroin, and it just started they just started dropping all across the city. And then and then you'll have another few months with nobody dying, and then all of a sudden a bunch more deaths. It's this fentanyl. It's like, well, then then what, what do we do about that? And this fireman I'd, I'd never have on this podcast. He was like a, a a racist piece of shit. I'm not kidding. Like he was just like, he's like I don't give a fuck if they die. He's like, he's like they're weak. We gotta weed out the weak, you know. He's like, yeah, he this whole like wow. Hitler mentality. And I was like, cool, man, Nazis are awesome. Like, whatever, the fuck it out of here. Um, yeah, and um, and
1: that's that's the type of thinking in in America that that needs to change. I mean, people who who you know, think like that and all that, I'm, I guess, I suppose, I understand, like, if you've had a family member that, you know, got, got killed by an addict or something like that happened, I can understand some animosity or some understanding that might need to be had there and might have to be hard to have. But people who've just never experienced it or been through that or anything, uh, there's just, there's there's no understanding about the type of compassion that needs to be had. You can... You I mean they're just they're so naive. I don't know how you reach somebody who's that naive about the situation that I don't even think that you can like bring the situation to their conscious for them to actually see what's going on.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. People have an experience of themselves and also there's a lot of uh, I think the media and the and the, the kind of the narrative in this country that happened through the war on drugs and the propaganda that they, they have this Uh, this almost false illusion of what what it is to be a drug addict like it's just like it's just like it was just their choice like you chose to be nobody would choose to be a a crack addict on the streets nobody would make that choice but but they they look at it as like well you should just get a job and stop smoking crack it's like well i'm sure if they could just do that they would because it would be way better to have a job and a house than to be living on the street smoking crack so you know people need to understand that there's the addiction basically is a is a product, a byproduct of mental health issues. Somebody that had, you know, was abused as a child, or somebody that had, suffers from bipolar, and a lot of these people that are have mental illness, their their family, after them messing up so many times, the family gives up, and a lot of families they can't afford the correct mental health the child needs, things like that, and the child ends up on drugs, and then they just blame the drugs. It's easier to blame drugs than it is to say they have a disease. Well, they they just like doing drugs, so they 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 got all fucked up, and now I'm just gonna say. Well, stop doing drugs or, you know, you're not allowed in this house. You're not going to have a place to sleep. So they blame the drugs. The drugs are not the problem. The problem was under, underlying before. The
1: problem, yes, I, you, I think you are about to say exactly what I was going to say. The problem starts way before the drug use starts. The drug use in certain in situations, you know, people say, oh, well, they were curious or I was wondering about this or something like that, you know. But for the most part, consciously or subconsciously, once you get that feeling once, if you're seeking that feeling again at that young of an age, it's probably to have something, to numb something, to forget about something, to you know, to make your life better a way that you've found to make your life better. And it's so easy. All you've got to do is just eat this pill. You yeah. just eat this pill and everything is kind of better.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And then, and then when you're dealing with something as a child, especially if it's a problem at home where you have an abusive family member or uh, or whatever it is if, if you have to constantly go back to that house to sleep and you that anxiety that happens with these kids like you said well there's a cure for it you're not going to fix it by fixing your parent because or whoever it is you're going to fix you have to fix it by self-medicating and then that leads to an addiction and then what does the addiction end up leading to arrest and then the arrest leads to a criminal record that stops you from getting a good job which leads to more addiction and it becomes this vicious cycle, and our society has created uh, basically a, a simple roadmap into destroying your life. Like, all right, what we're going to do is you're going to start here in your home, and it's going to mess you up, and then and then our society is going to send you right down a path that just keeps on throwing you into the ground. So we got to change that.
1: Yeah, and nobody's, nobody's addressing the fact also, too, that a lot of times, kids in situations like that—if you're in an abusive home, or if there's a, uh, you know, spousal abuse, domestic violence, and things like that at the house—there are drugs involved. Those kids know what drugs are. They've seen mom pass out, possibly, or you know, they've seen dad's friend over there when he came over to, to break up, you know, some some mess and give his buddy some, or you know, they there's they, they're not naive to the situation. And I think a lot of times that they're treated like they're naive to the situation. You know, like, oh, you're just a little five year old. Uh, mommy's not feeling too good right now or anything like that. And, you know, that five year old, you think everything's okay, but that five year old's probably thinking in their head, no, mommy's not okay. She snorted that brown shit again and she's passed out on the couch. I, I've seen this happen before. What's going on? Yeah. And if they don't get answers to questions like that, that they have, especially if they're coming from a broken home or something, well, by God, they're going to get answers one way or the other. And if they don't trust their parents as authoritative figures, they're not going to trust any other teacher or policeman or anything like that to guide them or all that. They're going to go out there and find out for themselves. And Then they go out there and they find out that this takes away all my problems. I don't think about what happened when I was younger when I'm on this stuff.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's just a sad society that we've created where we we, once once they're out of that situation, like say if somebody gets arrested for... Heroin possession or whatever it is, we should that should be immediately be like, all right, something's going on with this kid. He's doing heroin. Let's talk to him. Let's see what's going on with him. Let's try to let's try to work out whatever mental things that have, whatever has been going on. Let's give him some therapy. Let's get him off a of heroin. No, it's let's lock him up. Let's just lock him up. What yeah, the, what the hell?
1: Lock him up. Throw a public defender at him. That's you know gonna try to get him on this deal to that deal and this that and the third. And the next thing you know, you're like, oh, I'm a felon. But, you know, a lot of a lot of kids, 18, 19, 20 years old, they might not necessarily know what that means. You know, they know, okay, I I didn't you know, I I went to jail for this amount of time because I didn't want to go for this amount of time. And I said I was guilty for this and everything. And and so now I'm a felon and all that kind of stuff. And then you get out and everything and find out, oh, you're a felon. Oh, you can't vote. Oh, you can't do this. Oh, you can't do that. Oh, you can't hold a license for this. You can't do that. The stigmatism that comes. With having that F next to your name will follow you for the rest of your life. Yes, it will. And I'm and in that, a very, that, very lucky position that I, you know I, I own my own business and was able to get licensing for all of this stuff and all that. And I don't necessarily have to uh, explain my past actions to said authorities that might be over me in a company or something.
0: And, and have, have not, you had I'm problems? Sure. Have you had problems when you lease uh, when leasing buildings?
1: Um, no, actually, there's there has never been uh, anything like that. The only uh, time that the question of um, criminal activity came up was when we were filing for, I believe it was, all of our state licensing numbers um, with the Department of Revenue in North Carolina and then uh, the big boys up in Washington, the IRS. They asked you if you're a felon, and uh, we answered truthfully. Um, and it didn't bar us from getting a license or anything, I believe that that might just be more for their record-tracking purposes. Gotcha. Now, as far as holding beer and wine license or liquor license, I'm not sure if me or my wife would be able to do that because I think there is something to do with uh, felonious activity and holding those licenses and things like that. Gotcha. But aside from that, I mean, when uh when I got out and stuff, there were... I mean I, I just I immediately went directly to the restaurant industry because, you know, I knew I knew I knew I wasn't one of the the kids that didn't know what it meant. I knew what it meant having that F next to my name. So, yeah. you know, when I got out I went straight to the restaurant industry because I know unless you're in way upper management there They'll pretty much tolerate a
0: lot of yeah. They don't do you know, they don't do background checks. Criminal records. I'm, I'm I knew, I did I went in the restaurant business for the same reason because every time I tried to get a job somewhere corporate they my my criminal background would come back and I just had pot misdemeanors but they still they wouldn't hire me so then I go go to the restaurant business and you just lie you know you just say I have no no criminal background they do not check in the restaurant business because they just need servers and they have such a big turnover they're just like you you have serving experience get in here we don't we don't care like you said unless you get up yeah, in management. And,
1: The the blind eye that's turned to the the activity that goes on, I mean, in the restaurant, right there on the line of the kitchen. Oh, yeah, that's another thing. Story after story after story of, yeah, you're out there eating your food, and you think everything's all on the up and up, and that's all good and everything, but they're trying to figure out how they can still serve the green beans that they spilled the cocaine in. (laughs) (laughs)
0: yeah man i i I, there's been so much drug use in restaurants and that's what i always tell people like oh like when you hear like some some old lady on the news and this was when they were talking about legalizing marijuana in florida she's like i don't want this stuff to be any easier for my grandchildren to get their hands on like i don't want it to be any easier for anybody to get it's like lady it's already extremely easy to get any restaurant in the state you can go to somebody in the kitchen and get any drug you want like
1: Yes, yeah, that's that's about it, and and the thing about that too is that's become such a thing that you see that being played on in movies and things like that. I mean, it's a known fact that those people in the restaurant get ratchet.
0: Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, but yeah, and actually, I'd but like that, to I'd like to wonder they will
1: accept you for any any background. Um, funny thing about that background, I they were opening up um when they first started opening up the chain of cookouts. Around Gastonia and Charlotte. I went and applied for the job of uh, assistant kitchen manager. It was salary position and everything. I mean, if I was after it. If I'd gotten that, I would have been quite happy. Things would have been going quite nicely financially. But you wouldn't be so, where you are uh, now. Like, yeah, no, I would better. not be. Not at all. But you would be they a... <laughs> gave the interview and everything. I went in. They actually decided after they did the interview, they wanted me to be the general manager of one. They were like, we're going to give you your own store, you know? 65k a year, your own store, full benefits, stock options, blah 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 blah. I was totally totally on board with all that stuff. And it was um uh, probably 3 days after all of that was started to get set in motion, they called me back and said they wouldn't be able to move forward with it because I had a couple of misdemeanor uh marijuana charges on my record. And now that was before before the cocaine, yeah. I was yeah, that I was now I was, you know, Moving a, a little bit. Yeah. How, feet, how much did you get caught with? Um. When when I got caught, I believe it was twenty seven grams. It was right under an ounce. That was the only thing that actually got the trafficking charge dropped off. Um. Kind of immediately, they tried to stick you with trafficking, which is a when you get caught up in that kind of thing, that's a charge you really want to try to avoid. Conspiracy is a horrible one to get hit with because now you've got to prove that you didn't know that it was going on. You don't even have to be there. You've got to prove that you didn't know what was happening. Yeah. Good luck with that. Right. But trafficking, um, will get, it's an automatic three years. There's no way that you don't do at least three years off a trafficking charge. So, um, but the amount was under an ounce. Fasukine is 28 grams for uh, cocaine. So since it was 27, that got off of there. Um, so I got called with that. I think it was uh, about 38, 39 um, colotipins, uh, benzodiazepam pills, which at the time, the reason I had those actually is because I had been prescribed colotipins by a doctor in Belmont for probably about two and a half years. And he'd switched practices, and the new person I went to pulled the prescription, and I didn't have them anymore. So I was getting them, you know, from various people I knew and making sure I had myself a a good steady supply. And I will tell you from personal experience that benzo uh, withdrawal is a son of a bitch. And they don't care if you're going through that. When you're locked up, you can tell them they don't give a shit. You just go through it, and then you get better. (laughs) That's about that.
0: Well, damn. Damn, that's that's.
1: Wow. and i'm trying to think what else it was now the the way we got caught there were undercover agents in the bar
0: and that was the bar that my, my band at. was playing at we were playing in was in concord somewhere and you came out to see our it band. was
1: concord yes incidentally enough me and my wife are banned from uh the city of concord for life
0: and you made the news you made like the <laughs> six o'clock news that bust. They, they were like it was like some huge bust
1: that's that's what i heard yeah they were even telling me about that on um, my. Uh, well, the way it went down, actually, is uh, I was resting and all that kind of stuff, this, that, and the third. And uh, they took me in the holding cell while they were trying to figure out where they, where they were going to place me. And that was probably at, like, about, I don't know, I'd say maybe 4.30 in the morning. And so, you know, I was just, um, uh, I ended up being the only one in there. Some time had gone by, and uh, there was no no one in there. It was cold as crap. You know, I was hungry. I was just like, what, what is going on? So I was just like, fuck it, man, I'm going to lay down and try to get some sleep. And um, uh, so I laid down, and there was a newspaper, and I covered myself up with the newspaper. I was laughing in my head like, this this is a scene right here, man. You are in the holding cell with the newspaper over you at 4.30 in the morning and start to go through withdrawals. This needs to be in a movie or
0: something.
1: Wow. Man. But uh, so finally, like two hours later, I, I did kind of doze off and then woke up. They came in there and gave me a little bit of food, and I ate that. And then, uh, then they didn't come back again until like about 7.30 or 8 o'clock that night. They finally came back and opened the door again. And the person that opened the door was like, Mr. Buckley. And I was like, yes, sir. And he was like, Oh, we've been looking for you. We have been looking for you. So they've lost me. They didn't didn't <laughs> know where the hell I was or anything. Apparently. I, I don't know what went on, but they brought me back and they took me back into the, um, uh, into the, the pod that I was in. And I've been in there, I guess for like two hours when they first arrested me, I've been in there because they're like, Hey, he's back, man. He's back. And, I was just like, yeah. They were like, yeah, man, you don't remember you came in here like, a, like I don't know, a day and a half ago or something. You were in here for an hour, and then they took you back out. And I was like, no, I don't remember anything like that. And they were like, where have you been? And I was like, what do you mean, where have I been? And they're like, where have you been? You know, you know you've you been gone for a day and a half. And I'm like, so I had to smooth things over with the inmates and everything and explain to them, you know, that I I, want, I didn't just go away and give 12-hour testimony on somebody or something like that. That was fun, but... It went over well enough. No blood was shed, so that was good. <laughs> yeah. Wow. But, uh, yeah, this, once you get in there in that system, it's um, uh, It's your, I mean, it depends on the type of person that's, that's guarding you, the way you're going to be treated. I had some COs who were cool, you know. They uh, they might, you know, I don't know, you know, give you a candy bar if they had an extra one or something. Like that. Here, man, you, you know, you guys want to split this or something like that. Uh, there were some COs that were not cool. I remember uh, the first day I was in there, I didn't have a toothbrush, and um, uh, I was asking my cellmate, I said, man, where, where do you get your toothbrush? You know, they didn't give me a toothbrush, a toothpaste. Like, I got nothing here. What the hell is going on? And he was like, oh, you got to ask him for one. So I was like, okay, I'll ask the CO when he comes back. So the CO come back around. I was like, CO? I was like, I ain't got no toothbrush. Now I need toothpaste. You know, I, was like, I ain't brush brushed my teeth in like three days. And, you know, like you said, he's one of those guys who's like, oh, yeah, you, you was the one to come in, didn't know where you where you was at, which is all a lie. I mean, I was, I was just upset and cussing at him and stuff because I was pissed off I got caught. <laughs> yeah. But I'm um, like, yeah, so he suggested that I should probably just use my cellmate's uh, dick to brush my teeth with and that, that everything would go over okay, fine. So I literally had to wait for the COs to change shift for a new CO to come on, and then she finally got, or he finally got me a toothbrush. Wow. So, yeah, it, it, <laughs> it, it depends on, once, once you're in there, your rights are gone. They can do whatever they want to in there. Prison's a little bit different than a county jail. In prison, I was at a youth camp, which was geared for people 18 to 27, I believe. And where I processed that was an adult camp, which basically had, it was medium security, which had more violent offenders in there and, and more serious criminals. Me personally, I would have rather stayed at the medium security camp. Those guys know how to do their time. Nobody, if... Nobody gets out of line unless unless like it's some serious shit off a TV getting out of line fight going on, because those camps, yes, the CEOs run those prisons, but I would definitely say that the other gangs have most of the control over what goes on in there. The drugs get into those prisons because the gangs want those drugs to get in there. Those CEOs let the drugs get in those prisons because the gangs want them to get in there, you know, and they know to do it. They don't want their family to be jeopardized because they're not going along with the plane or they're anything prob- like probably that. They're probably also
0: getting kickbacks, I'd imagine.
1: Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm quite sure. I'm quite sure of it. And what well, that was interesting about that, when I was at, the prison I was at, uh, I think it was called Morrison Correctional Facility, the youth camp one anyways, where everybody's all, all the time. If you take about 500 young men 18 to 27 and throw them all in a group together what you're going to get is a lot of testosterone and a lot of fists being thrown around that's that's what you get <laughs> i
0: imagine wow yeah
1: it yeah. does not sound like and a place um, you'd want to be, be honest you know co's for the most part they i mean they'll you know they'll break the fight up and stuff but that going to let you fight. i mean they're gonna, they're gonna let that new dude get his ass kicked for as long as they as they want to you know or as long as they've been told to or if they've been told hey you know you're not going to be on B-block for 15 minutes. And a matter of fact, you're going to make sure the camera's facing the other way, too. It's, you know, it's it's, it's crazy wow. to see power struggles up in there and stuff. The one in the camp that I was at, they were actually under investigation for uh appropriation of funds and fraud and all kinds of stuff, and they are shut down now. I know that that, that prison is no longer there. But um, uh, I think that leads back to the fact that those state prisons have to uh, – you know, it costs them $39,000 a year to fund for one inmate. Now, a lot yeah. of that money comes from the federal government. So let's say the federal government is giving them, you know, I'm not sure what the figure is, but if the feds are supplementing that thirty dollars to $35,000 a year, I can tell you from personal experience they're not spending anywhere near like 10000 a year on the inmate, you know. We didn't even have air conditioner in there. Rockingham, North Carolina from, let's see here, April until the end of July, no air conditioner whatsoever. It really in does make you
0: wonder where that money's going. I think it goes to the to the to this actual corporation that because a lot of these prisons, I don't know about that one, but a lot of prisons around the country are privatized. And then, you know, the, the, so the money that's going per prisoner, a lot of it's getting funneled into the corporation. These people, you know, all the people that are sitting, you know, behind the scenes, the bureaucrats that are making all this money.
1: It definitely is, man. I can tell you two of those names, actually. Michael Jordan owns a lot of prisons in North Carolina. A lot of people don't know that.
0: Well, I didn't know that. I'm going to have to look into that. Are you sure? That's crazy. And
1: the prison-issued um, clothing and the prison-issued um, shower shoes and everything like that, they are Bob Barker. Bob Barker shoes come from the Bob Barker Corporation. What? Same dude that gets up on there and says, the price is right.
0: Wow. Wow, that's...
1: It's a money, money, money racket. I don't know how deep it goes, and um, uh, I haven't even done enough research to start bitching about it, to be honest. Well, I'll tell you, there's this great book... It's got to be be corrupt if you're spending that amount of money to just try to keep someone behind bars who's not really a danger to society, you know?
0: Yeah, I... um, Actually, I might mess up the name of the book. It's called, called... I think it's called Going Up the River, or it's Going Down the River, one of those two but it's about the prison system, and um, I read it a while back, uh, but um, yeah, it's about mandatory sentencing laws, and it goes kind of the history of the prisons, like there's there was this one prison where they, uh, there's some of these are still open where the, the, their whole theme is you stay in your prison cell the whole entire time and you don't associate with anybody and that's your punishment. Um, and these people actually go insane because you, you'd think you would rather be in a cell where nobody could hurt you, you know no fist fights but actually that's worse mentally for you it's actually more healthy to be out where you might get in a fist fight than being stuck in a cell by yourself for an entirety of a sentence.
1: So um, but anyway yeah the, the solitary confinement is that was even a the, what they called it where I was at they called it seg or segregation yeah you would go down there and it was kind of like down lower in a lower level a little bit and I mean you basically you got put in a cell by yourself you might be able to holler at another inmate and they could holler back and stuff possibly but other than that that was it no contact no nothing i don't even think you see the guards they they you know give you the meals through through the door and stuff like that and that social cut off from society it's i mean it'll make somebody go insane and you're gonna get two kind of crazy people that come out of that situation you're going to get somebody who comes out of there crazy, who's kind of drooling on herself and doesn't know what's going on and everything is going ended up in a mental institution. Or you're going to get somebody who comes out of there who's been working out for the past 10 years, hasn't said one word as big as crap and is ready to fuck someone up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, you're, you're literally driving these people insane. And there was the one president was in Pennsylvania somewhere. And it was, the idea was you spent your whole sentence, no matter what your crime was. So if you did fight, this one guy got into trouble for, for like stealing. So he's in there for five years, um, completely in a cell by himself. He gets out, immediately commits a crime. He's back in for another, I think, ten years. So after ten, after fifteen years in the same cell, they say he had painted the whole cell, from, you know, from wall to ceiling and. He ended up uh, when they let him out after that ten-year spell. He uh, he ended up going back to the prison and just asking asking if he could just have a cell back. And he, and he died. They let him back in, and he just died in there because at that point he wasn't mentally. He couldn't be in society. It was too weird. He had to be back in his little cell. That's just what made sense to him. And yeah, just, that's they so sad. speak
1: about it in um, a Shawshank Redemption. Actually, you call it institutionalized. Yeah, you have yep. got to think about it. If if you've been living, if you've had a life that you've known for the past 30 to 35 years and that's all you know i mean that's what you're used to you come back out into society first off think about the changes that have happened in 35 years think about what we have now that we don't have 35 years ago you know you wouldn't even know how to communicate you wouldn't know what a cell phone was you you wouldn't you would not be prepared to function at all
0: no no not not at all and the technology is so rapidly changing now that for 35 years from now, it's going to be even that much different than what it was from 35 years ago. Today, it's um, and and so I think the prison system. What we need to do with the changing of technology is use this technology, use the spreading of information. For instance, that's why I'm doing this podcast. Is I want to help spread and like uh, change people's uh, perspective about the war on drugs and and also about uh, the, the in our prison system. I mean, I think we need to re refigure out or figure out. How we um, you know run a society where pe- violent people aren't uh, basically running free to do whatever they want, we do have to have a system that stops violent people from being among us, but we also have a way a, more of a rehabilitation uh, system versus a punishment system because if you punish somebody who was already violent for ten years and then you let them back out what's the chances that they're not going to do something violent again? Probably not very likely. They- or I mean, it is very likely that they're going to do something violent. But if you if they spent ten years in a more of a clinical setting with therapy and things that would make them better, the problem is is that that setting might be more comfortable for the prisoner. And in our society, it's like, well, we don't want them to be comfortable. We want them to be punished for what they did. It's like, but th- what good yeah, does that yeah. do? They
1: they have to serve their pittance
0: Yeah, and it's you know, like if play. that if that made them. All right. I think the theory is that if they hate we're, prison we're so much, we're
1: living under Spanish Inquisition rules here. <laughs>
0: Exactly, but I think that the theory is if is they, they hate their time in prison so much that they'll be so scared to go back that they won't do another violent crime but what you don't understand is the reason they did the first one was because they have something mentally off balance with them and if you don't fix that in that 10 years the, the fear of going back to prison isn't going to stop them they're, they're not mentally exactly. right
1: Exactly, that's, that's like asking the woman who gets abused well why do you go back to, why do you go back to the same environment she says because that's what I know yeah. So you you know, you stick somebody in the prison environment for ten to twenty years. Does it suck? Yeah, it does. After twenty years, do they know that it sucks? No, probably not.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. It's... They're just used to that. You know, they're they're used to that. It's it's almost I don't want to compare inmates to livestock at all like that. But I definitely believe that, that would that would probably be the the end goal for, you know, all these wardens and guards and everything. Be like, yeah, it'd be a lot better if we could just, you know, give everybody a... A little bit of ketamine or trazodone or something like that each morning, and they can just kind of shuffle around and stuff.
0: Yeah, because, exactly. Because for them, for them, it is cattle. It is. I mean, like you said, they are human beings, and we are not saying they're cattle. But the system treats them as if they are, as if they are just like. like yeah, how how, mean, how they're, small they're, can we get their cells? A number. Like what we do in the.
1: You're given a prison number, and you're referred to by your prison number: 0295. Eight. I can't remember mine, but I'm, I had it memorized for the longest time, just because that's that you know without that number you can't do nothing. You can't get you can't get your money if you want to buy some food that's not the food that they serve you. And let me tell you about the food that they serve you in prison, because I did work in the kitchen to try to get a little bit of time knocked off. Um, it's it's just not good. I mean, I'm not sure where they're sourcing it from. It didn't come in on like any Tyson food truck or anything like that. <laughs> Sometimes comes. we would get in things and it would say meat patties for frying. So I'm like, okay, that's meat. And sometimes we would get in things that would say chicken patties for frying. So I'd be like, okay, that's chicken. And then sometimes we would get in boxes that would just say patties for frying. <laughs> no, just a patty. And I asked the yo one time, I said, do y'all know what's in these patties? And they said, nope. And I said, okay. I noticed that none of y'all eat the food that's here. Every single one of y'all brings you lunch or orders
0: of course you know do. some
1: pizza hut or something like Again, that. Again, it's like
0: giving the slot for a cattle, they're like what's the cheapest thing we can get that's gonna that's gonna sustain them like gonna make them to, you know keep them alive for their time here, the cheapest thing we can get and then what's the smallest space we can get that we can house them in where they where they can you know they can survive it's just like the like what, what our uh, farm manufactured farms do with the chickens what's the smallest cages we can put a chicken in where they where they won't die and what's the cheapest fee we can get them to where they'll you know be healthy enough to, to where we can slaughter them and sell them so that's I guess the only difference is exactly. they're not slaughtering you and selling you but they're <laughs> but they're making you work and a lot of these prisons make people like make clothes and stuff for 10 cents an hour and then the clothes are sold on the free on the open market like that's slave labor.
1: Oh, I was actually on two different work crews when I was in there. Uh, one was the community work crew. It was called CWC, and we were contracted out to the um, uh, state, I believe, to go around and and you know do things that the state was paying for, like clean this park up or you know chop all these vines down and clear this area and put all this stuff in the in the you know fifty two foot dumpster we got here or something. Now, if I recall correctly, I believe we were getting paid 90 cents a day. I think is what it was. That seems the fair. The contracted <laughs> job that was going out now, the contracted job was paying us 10 to 12 dollars an hour. But we were making 90 cents a day. Oh, so, so my so, question oh, is, yeah, where's where is that money going? A, where did I, Where is that money going? Why do we have, you know, a surplus in the budget of us all? A half a trillion dollars, you know? Why did the warden at the prison literally look like a pimp? He looked like a pimp. <laughs> like a pimp. <laughs> I mean, he did. He would, what he'd a have fucking on, like, racket. you know, come in, flamboyant shirt sign. I mean, you want to talk about some Gucci loafers? Like, $500 shoes at least. And then the jewelry. Gold pinky rings. I, mean, I was just like, this is the guy who's going to keep us in, in control? You're telling me that this dude has, has you know, has, he just, I don't want to judge a book by its cover, but this dude looked
0: like he'd probably been involved in some stuff in his life. Yeah, I imagine. But, and that's the thing. A lot of criminals are legal. They find legal loopholes to be scoundrels and they, and they help manipulate laws in their favors to where they, they become, they get in these positions of power. And, um, those are like the, uh, the sociopathic, uh, businessmen and they end up in positions and anybody who gets into the private prison, prison business and is profiting off of cheap labor from, uh, you know, for prisoners. That's, that's to me, you'd have to be a sociopath to sleep at night. I don't understand.
1: It's, it's kind of crazy to me. I mean, it surprised me a little bit to know that, that Jordan did own, you know, a lot of prisons in North Carolina. I just, I'm not sure if he still does. This is information, you know, that, that I was looking into maybe about seven, eight years ago.
0: All right. This is a, um, my first time in a podcast of doing a little interruption. This is We're going to get right back to the conversation. But um, I had to fact check the things that David was saying. And um, and I, I did look it up. Uh, when I looked up, did Michael Jordan own prisons? I said, yes, Michael Jordan did indeed invest in private prison stocks. It's the Michael Jordan who works for the Bureau of Environmental Services in Portland. So a case of a mistaken identity. Um I'm sure David heard that somewhere and was shocked and, and it just stuck with him. And we're having a free-flow free conversation, so he just said it. And um, So no disrespect to David, but we have to get the facts right. Uh, Michael Jordan, the basketball player, does not own any prisons. And then to go back, he said that Bob Barker, um, again, not trying to call David out for anything. I just want to fact check. And I do think it's funny, the idea of Bob Barker owning prisons, uh, but he doesn't. Uh, it's uh, he. But David also, once again, was right. Bob Barker Company um does supply a lot of the prisons the private prisons with different things and makes a lot of money on it but it bought the bob barker company is in no relation to the tv host bob barker and um i also wanted to just also say i, I mentioned a book that i recommended and i couldn't remember the name of it so while i'm doing this little segment i'll just tell you it's called going up the river by joseph t Hollinon. and um it's an amazing book. So, I just wanted to give that book a quick plug. If you're interested in what we're talking about, the private prison systems, mandatory se- sentencing, and how all that works, it's a great book, a great read. The author goes around all the different prisons and interviews different people and families that have been affected by the mandatory sentencing law. So, check that out. Now, we're going to get back to a little bit, some misinformation, but all there was no um, you know, ill intention. It was just a mistaken identity on both counts. So, uh, once again, having a great conversation with David. So, we're going to get right back into it. But, um, so anyway, we've we hit about an hour. Um, we're going we're gonna to wrap this up, but I, I do want to touch on a few other things before we go. Just the, um, I want to talk about your shop. Let's get a little plug for your for your smoke shops or head shops or vape shops, whatever you want to call them. They're called the Pied Piper, and you have four locations. Yes. So where, so well. That is correct. F- so, where, so let's talk about which, which, city, which four locations you got.
1: Okay, so we started our location in Silva, North Carolina which is right down the road from Cullowee, where Western uh, North Carolina University is, in 2014. Uh, my wife had done a good little bit of demographic research and found out that the closest headshot to the college was about 42 miles away. So that just seemed like a market that was, was asking to, to be broken into. Nice. And we did pretty well with that one. Um, in 2015, in uh, the, the fall, we opened up in Franklin, North Carolina, which is uh, about 30 minutes away from Silva. Franklin, North Carolina actually was the uh, one of the biggest towns for tourism during the solar eclipse uh, about two years ago. Um, I think about maybe eighty-five, ninety thousand 90,000 people were in that town for one day, and it normally has a population of, I don't know, six or seven maybe.
0: <laughs> wow. Wow, that's crazy. So yeah, it had, was you probably had a lot of business because a lot of like, uh, hippie-type people are wanting to see the solar eclipse and, you know... <laughs>
1: Um, yeah, we uh, we did uh, did okay that day, and uh, then we um uh, we've opened we've got one here in uh, Waynesville, North Carolina, which is actually where we live as well, and um uh, that one's doing doing good too. And we just opened up our brand new one out in Asheville off of Sweeten Creek Road, and we've had that open for about six months now, and uh, nothing but good things are coming out of that store too. So we're hoping to keep growing and all that kind of stuff. Um, We are definitely uh, Western North Carolina's number one stop for Delta 8, CBD, pipes, be it local blown or your favorite brands, all name brand e-juices, disposables, basically anything that's in that kind of uh, genre of market, we've got it.
0: Very cool. Now, if my guests are listening from Florida, but want to support your business, can they go online and order anything?
1: Um, we do not do mail shipping or anything like that at this moment, anyways. So, how do uh, we do have Facebook thing. pages? Say, say again? Uh, yeah, it's it's just something we haven't really looked into, to be honest. Gotcha. Um, we do have Facebook pages and stuff like that. I do know that the local glass blowing scene down in Florida is uh, quite big and quite large there, as is the uh, Delta 8 CBD production. So if there's anyone out there who's into that and is manufacturing, you shoot us a message on over at one of our Facebook pages and maybe we'll end up doing business with you.
0: Nice. Very cool. So, um, so yeah, man, I can't wait to see you again. And i um, just one last quick story. I just remember I went and saw your, your first shop in Silva, uh, when I was living in North Carolina about four or five years ago. And, um, and I stayed the night with you guys, and I remember the next morning, because there was a new, a new vape shop, a, co- a competition that had opened up downtown, and there was some, they were doing some kind of event with live music, and you're like, well, fuck it, we'll go check it out, check out the competition. And, um, but before we went, you were like, you want to hit the bong? And I'm like, yeah, I'll hit the bong. And I, at the time, I wasn't smoking a lot, and the bud you had was very strong, and... I took a big bong hit, man. And I was so stoned going downtown. It was so cool, though. I was like, it was just like such a surreal, like, like it felt like a dream. I was just so high. We went to a restaurant and ate and I could hardly talk to the server. And then we went and watched that band. (laughs) It was so cool, man. I, I, and I really enjoyed seeing your shop and I'm so proud that you're doing this. And I think it's so cool that you, you you know you everything you've done even i mean i think that when you were young and you started selling drugs it was just an opportunity to make money and you like drugs you like doing them yourself so you're like oh make some money and then you know when you get older you're like can't do that that's not that was work. it
1: right there that that's kind of where it started from actually was me just running so much for guests that people in the restaurant industry hey man i need a half hey, i need a dub hey i need this hey, i need this okay i'm gonna see dude and get all that stuff you know and he just kind of told me, you know, he was like, "Look, man, what you're doing is stupid. You need to come to me, get a lot, sell it to your people. I'll give it to you for a good price, and then you come back and get more."
0: Yeah. And but, I was yeah.
1: like, "Okay, I'll give that a shot." And and it just I, it it took off from there, kind of rapidly.
0: Yeah, it snowballed until you're making good money. And like I say, when you're young, you don't you don't think about some things. And it's not like like you and me have always had because we started doing drugs when we were probably what 13. And I remember we hung out in your yeah, parents' parking lot so right. much. Another funny story was, I, remember, I, I tell this story all the time. Because remember, we used to just get super baked in your driveway. And uh, we'd walk down in the woods and get baked and then just hang out in your driveway. And your parents were, they were always cool. They weren't cool, with, they, they weren't cool with drugs. And I think they knew what we were doing. But they were cool as in they just let us be ourselves without giving us too much shit. But they, they invited us in for dinner one day. So And they, they invited me. And like, Aaron, you hungry? Come eat with us. I was like, all right. And we, I don't know how old we were. We were probably like 16, 17. No, probably 16. And um, I just remember sitting down for dinner and, and your parents would always say, say grace and your mom's like, Aaron, would you like to say the blessing? And you and I are baked, like super high. And you just go, <laughs> you just, you're like, Aaron, would you like to say the blessing? And you just go, Aaron would not like to say the blessing. <laughs> like it's matter of factly. <laughs> without, and they were like, no, David, let Aaron speak for himself. And I was like... Uh yeah, I'll do the blessing. And I just, know it was something very short and simple that I just like memorized. I was like, uh, "Dear, dear God, we ask you to bless this food," and in the name of Jesus, Amen. And your mom was just like, "Aaron, that was beautiful." <laughs> your mom was so sweet. That was, and the, you know, they they fed me often, man. I I, I appreciate them. I pre- I love growing up with you, man. You're one of the funnest people I've ever met. And um, and I just think it's oh, so cool yeah, what you're baby. doing.
1: I, I I still talk about you all the time. A lot of my employees know. Like he's got some friend named Aaron, and they used to be crazy together.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully they'll, they'll get to listen to this podcast. Um, I actually have some. Uh, I'm getting some merch, just like some buttons, like more for advertisement. If it's cool, um, uh, just uh, I'll I'll get your address, man. If I, if you're cool, I'll just I'll ship you a box of buttons. You just like give them out to your. Or set maybe set a little display, of people with like free buttons to advertise the podcast or something.
1: Oh hell yeah, dude! I totally do. I've got a little jar that I do things like that for. I mean, we'll do whatever we can to support the locals up here. You know, you're a new band trying to get your name out there. Give me them posters, man. Let me get your CD. You know, I throw that up in the uh, up in the the display and get it playing in the stores so people can hear y'all. And, and oh, who is that? Oh, it's this band right here. I got the flyer, man. They're playing here here at that day. Go no, go check them out.
0: Very and, cool. And um, uh,
1: you know the the lo- local glass blowers, we we love them. All the local CBD farmers, local, local, local.
0: Very cool, man. That's that's awesome. It's always awesome to support. Anybody's trying to do something like, like you say, local bands or anything. Um, I, I think it's cool when people actually get, you know, get involved with whatever it is that that's their that's their thing. Have your thing, and your thing has always been, honestly, with you and me, it's both been drugs. That's why I'm doing the Peace on Drugs podcast. I think it's an important message. But I, I think I, you know, I've we've lived that life, and then your your thing has always been kind of the same thing. You like to make money. You like drugs. So now you've moved it into what can you sell legally, and you have these all these shops. It's awesome. Fucking yeah, awesome.
1: and it's, it seems to be working. And uh, I'm I'm excited about your podcast, dude. I'm so proud of you for doing it. I think it's going to... Thank you. It's, it could definitely be something. I'm going to share it with as many people as I can and stuff. And, uh, yeah, I I can't wait to be out here again.
0: Fuck yeah, dude. And like I say, uh, right now we're doing it from a phone. You're just calling me from the phone. We'll um, Next time we'll work on um, uh, getting a little better audio. But also we're going to get you down here to Florida, get you and your wife on. Talk about because um, I know Alicia very well. You know, um, I grew up with all you guys, and um, you and you know, y'all. She was a part of what all that you've done with putting the business together, even getting arrested together. So we can kinda- oh,
1: definitely, yeah. She's she's been uh, been right there through thick and thin, through all of it. Uh, there's there's nothing that I've been through that she really hasn't been through.
0: There you go, man. So I'd love to get both of you down here in the, in the actual studio. Come down here and visit me. You're welcome anytime, man. If you, you ever have any time off and you want to get out of North Carolina. It's, we're about to get into the hot season, but um, who cares? Come down here. It's well, like,
1: I'll, I'll make it work. might be a little bit sooner than later. Um, the sooner the better, the man. My are I doing mean, well and everything, but I've, I've got to give a shout-out to my wife's new business, 68 Asheville Highway, right when you come into Silva. On the left, next to Carolina Inc. Custom Tattoo, there's going to be a store coming in geared towards the 18 and up uh, adult and it's going to be called the love nest so if you're a frequent shopper of the pod piper and you like to get a little bit kinky or freaky you come on in there and we got what you're looking for too.
0: oh that's very cool man so one more time the name of your of the new shop
1: uh it's going to be called the love nest the love it nest it's not opened up yet we're shooting for grand opening hopefully june or july
0: Dude, that's awesome, and I'm so happy for you. And I, I think it's so cool your your ambition. I mean, it's inspiring, man. Like that, like just uh, you've always been very ambitious, though. Since I first met you, when we worked at Wind Dixie, we were uh, bag boys at Wind Dixie, man. That's when I first met you, and you were just this. You always just had energy, and we're just you. Know, you worked harder than anybody else there, and I um, mean that's when I first and we. Oh, actually, I, that, I think I first met you actually skateboarding at like Greer when I was going to Parkwood Baptist. We'd go over to Greer to skateboard, and you were there skateboarding.
1: That's where we met, and I believe um, I used to go, or we used to tell our parents that we were going to the youth group meeting or whatever, and yep. I'd show up there with um, Mark, and then we'd um, uh, you know, go out with um, uh, whoever was there and sneak off and smoke cigarettes and
0: stuff. That's exactly right. I went there with Grant, and, my, and so the same thing. My mom would drop me off for the youth group. And um, this is when we were like middle school, and we'd be like, "All right, we're going to youth group," and then we just wouldn't go. We'd go to this, we'd go to the like little uh, the gas station and steal cigarettes, and then sit out there and just chain smoke and skateboard, and um, and, and that's where I met Mark and you. And uh, what was Mark's older brother's name? Paul. Paul. Paul's cool as hell, man.
1: Yes, I hung out with him for a long time.
0: Yep. Yep. And um. So yeah, that's where we first met, but we we don't we really close there. We were more acquaintances. You skateboarded, and then and I skateboarded. and That was what you know, so I knew you. But then when we worked together at winn Dixie, that's when we got we first got close. Like I was yeah. like, oh, this dude's cool."
1: Definitely, definitely. Those were good times too. When Dixie was a fun place to work. Be young.
0: <laughs> it was man, I had a great time. <laughs> so
1: you been playing football in the back and stuff.
0: <laughs> oh you, oh, no, one other story. You remember that time we were tripping on acid and we went to the movie theater? And, um, I don't think we even saw a movie. I think was like walked around the movie theater, we were tripping balls. And then when you got back in the car, we got fucking in a car accident.
1: Yes. I remember that specifically. I remember sitting in the, um, in the cop car trying to explain to him what happened. <laughs> and I was so focused on his, um, uh, his dashboard because, you know, his speedometer was moving and the clock was changing numbers and stuff. And, you know, I was just like, you know, just it's not happening, man. It's, you're just, you know, you're, you're you're really into it right now. Just leave it alone. And he noticed it, and he said, "Hey, man, are you okay?" And I looked at him, and it looked like his whole face was just kind of like droopily melting off of his face. And I, you know, I just, I I remember just not liking the situation. It was horrible.
0: I had to sit in the cop car too. They at a time. We all had to sit and tell the story and I'm sitting there just tripping balls to this officer. And this, this is not the only time I had to sit in a cop car when I was messed up. And I think that we were so young, we were probably 16 or 15 and I had to be 16. You were driving. Um, But we were just like 16. And I think that we were just so young. The cops, just the idea that we might be tripping on acid just never occurred to them. They're like, these kids are just weirdos. Like whatever.
1: Yeah, <laughs> they like, they look weird. They smell weird. Well, if I remember correctly, we had some other substances in the car. Well, I'm and, sure we um, did. someone was in the back seat with us and took everything with them and went off running.
0: That Yeah, They're that like, sounds I'll about right.
1: Almonds almonds. I'll leave this scene. Yep. Yeah, that was crazy. And then, and then after that, we we drove off and we went to someone else's house and we ate a bunch of codeine to come down from the acid. I remember that too.
0: That sounds about right. <laughs> Well, anyway, David, it was so great talking with you, man. It's so great to catch up with you. And like I say, if you ever want to come down here to Florida and visit, hit me up. And next time I come to North Carolina, I'm going to come check out your locations and um and, and get to see you. And you'll get to meet my, my new wife, Megan. She's, she's an amazing musician.
1: Oh, yeah, dude. Do it, man. Do it, dude. I, I mean, you, you come up here and stay, man. I got guest suite and everything
0: fuck yeah dude i'll take you up on that for sure cool. and um but
1: um, uh honestly i'm yeah i'm hoping to get up with you pretty soon here it's uh florida sounding really nice and warm right now <laughs> it
0: is and i'm it's uh, right now it's actually pretty crazy with the season man it's like it's just absolutely bizarre the amount of people that are down here and it has it has to do with covid because a lot of places are still kind of um you know not completely open up north but down here it is so it's like it's like a pre-COVID time machine, nobody's wearing masks and every I mean, there's so many people. And I mean, the just the, the some these people are so rude. They come down here and I hear them like yelling at a server like, Can I get my fucking check? I've been waiting here for ten fucking minutes and you this service here, blah blah blah. And I wanna be like, Lady, these people are here. We're having to wear masks, working long shifts, busting their ass for season, and and you none of you are wearing masks. You're just walking around doing whatever the fuck you want. And you, you can wait a few minutes for your check. You're sitting here in paradise on the beach, chill the fuck out, man. These people we we are all so overworked right now with season, man. So I don't recommend coming down this month, but next month it'll start to slow down, man. In April, May, June. June, it starts to get a little hotter, but June's still not too bad. July and August is when it's really, really kind of miserably hot down here. But, um, yeah, but yeah, anytime you want well, to
1: come said April and May and see what I got going on. I mean, I know I can make time. We got managers and playing stuff like that now. So I got buffers, you know, I can keep them stores running for a good week or two when I'm not around.
0: Well, just, you know, figure it out. Let me know. And, um, we'll, we'll you know, we'll make it work. Um, all right, but it's dude, it was great talking with you. I think this podcast is awesome, man. You you're very informative. You you know you know your shit about everything. You know everything we've talked about. I love it. We're definitely gonna have you back on, um, probably multiple times. I think you'll just be a reoccurring guest throughout this you know oh, the life I, of this podcast. i can podcast. Definitely
1: do that. Also, if anything I said is a misinformation or uh, something that might end up being a false truth, I do apologize to anybody that's gonna fact check yes. me. I did try to uh, be as thorough as I possibly could.
0: I, I, I agree with you, and um, like I say, anybody who listens to something we say, if you look up something you're wrong, shoot me an email, and um, and I'll put a correction out there, but um, other than that, um, I, dude, it was a fucking awesome podcast, fucking great talking with you, uh, and, um, and I'll be... Oh, I'll, yeah, dude,
1: I, I had a blast. I can't
0: wait to do this again, man. Fuck yeah, man. Well, I'll talk to you soon.
1: All right. I All right love, love you, brother. brother. Later, man. Right, peace. Right, peace. Right, peace, Peace. Peace. peace.